From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. In healthcare settings, equal access to quality care plays a hugely important role for physicians and patients. The idea that access for any two patients is the same, though, isn't always true. When we think of disease and health as being impacted by a single cell or organ, we lose sight of many larger, interwoven parts of a patient's life. Access to food or medicine, income level and race, all compound to create different experiences for individuals in the healthcare system. Using his clinical background and interest in business and bioethics, Dr. Junaid Nabi wants to provide patients with more than just equal access, but a truly equitable system for all. Dr. Junaid Nabi is a senior healthcare researcher at Harvard Business School. Dr. Nabi, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to Think Research. Thank you for having me. Um, so um, tell us a little bit about your clinical training and how that has informed your research on access to health care and quality of care. Thank you for that question. So I grew up in, uh, in a very politically fragile environment in Kashmir, uh, which is still uh, undergoing a lot of changes in the last few years. And early on, uh, I've experienced the social health and economic inequities that our community in Kashmir has faced for a very long time. And I could sense from the very beginning, given that my father was a physician and my mother was working uh, with the government, that it wasn't really always about just the pathophysiology or what is wrong with the person's organ or a certain cell. But there were a lot of interrelated aspects to every single disease. So for example, it's very easy to say malnutrition in children is because of uh, lack of uh, nutrients. But if we look more broadly and if we understand the context, a lot of these children don't have access to proper food. They often don't live in communities that have resources where they can afford proper food. And a lot of times they, they belong to communities that don't have the power in a community to be able to provide for their children. So a lot of those reasons go into that malnutrition. It's not just about lack of protein or vitamins. It's about the broader socioeconomic determinants of health that do uh, contribute towards these diseases. So for me, early on, looking at these different aspects in my own community, I could, uh, I, I was inspired to work towards these problems at a broader scale. And that's what got me involved in medical training and eventually in public health training and now in uh, business strategy. And so you mentioned you grew up in Kashmir in India um, and you had a mentor, you had a role model in your father who was a physician. What made you want to pursue medicine and what was your focus during your medical training? So looking at my father who was, uh, who was working at the front lines for a very long time in Kashmir, I could sense uh, a couple of things. One was the fulfillment that he felt 
as a physician working for the community, the, the aspect of service, that one was contributing some value to the society and could have a decent professional life. But the other aspect was how much value one can add just by not, not just the service aspect, but also helping people provide them in, by providing them information, by providing them uh, certain tools or even nuggets of uh, wisdom that can really save them a lot of time and energy and resources down the line. Given the community that we lived in, our resources were scarce from the very beginning. So he had to make a lot of clinical decisions that took that context into into consideration and provided the the uh, prescriptions or other uh, uh, treatment modalities within that context. So that also provided me a lot of uh, understanding of how to really take care of resources. It's not just a matter of uh, looking at something in the textbook, but also how do we apply this information in a textbook in the context that we live in. And so uh, I trained in uh, medical science at that point, uh, was really inspired by my dad and my a lot of my family members are also physicians. So I uh, was inspired by that. In medical school, as I mentioned before, I sort of realized that it wasn't really about the pathophysiology. It was also about other elements uh, of the society we live in. And then I thought I should get more training in public health. And uh, that's how I got involved with the public health aspect, the broader health systems aspect of things. And uh, I, I do continue to learn about clinical medicine and use that in my routine uh, work. But all of this work is guided by the broader socioeconomic determinants that we have uh, in front of us. Right. And so, as you said, your research examines uh, sort of the social determinants of health. And one issue that you've looked at is racial differences in cancer outcomes. Could you tell us a little bit about that research? Yes, that was a, it was a fascinating research. So I've been involved with uh, cancer care outcomes research for some time, and uh, I've published uh, some of the studies on what are the socioeconomic determinants of these problems and where do they stem from? Because a lot of our information that we have uh, while in medical training or even afterwards comes from textbooks and medical journals and the evolving body of literature. And if you look at a lot of those resources, what we have seen is that a lot of times there is this uh, sort of a blame towards certain communities. So for example, in the US, if you look at a lot of the resources, it's very obvious that it seems that the outcomes for certain cancers are worse in the black community. And our research wanted to really understand, was it really about the community or is something else going on? Because even now in textbooks, and other forums of discussion, there does, to, there does seem to be a certain biologic determinant, a determination for these, uh, for these elements. And I, I don't believe in that and neither did our research group. So we tried to investigate this problem more deeply. And what we did, we analyzed uh, men with advanced prostate cancer to see what were the differences and what, where were those differences stemming from? And what we found out was access to care, treatment, and cancer characteristic, uh, characteristics, when we accounted for those, black race was associated with better outcomes compared to other communities. This it was really revolutionary in a lot of ways because so far it's always, a lot of these discussions always seem to suggest that there is probably some kind of biological issue going on in a lot of these issues. 
but that's not the case. Our analysis shows that demographic factors, as well as socioeconomic factors, such as access to care, the quality of care, these have a much more important impact on the outcomes for these cancers rather than what we you know, look at the genes, for example. They, that's not the only thing at play here. And these other demographic and societal factors play a much, much bigger role. And so our research was able to show that the incidence of prostate cancer is a little bit higher in the black community, but the outcomes are not associated with uh, some kind of biological uh, background, but more about the demographics and access to care and the quality of care that they receive at different places. What can policymakers learn from this kind of research? Yes, and, and a lot of that work, like I said, is, uh, is an ongoing body of work. And, but all the signals that we received so far, all the papers that are coming out uh, with robust data, they are suggesting that that is where uh, we should be focusing. And I think for health policy uh, leaders, these are really important considerations when, we, when they think about investments, when they think about allocation of care, when they think about what kind of centers should be promoted and what kind of centers should be invested more in. I think they should take uh, the lessons from this research uh, towards uh, enhancing access to care, enhancing quality of care, and really making sure that we are measuring uh, not just the outcomes, but also how care is delivered. Because if you if you look broadly at the system right now, it's not it's not so common to measure patient reported outcomes. For example, it's not that common to measure how do these patients uh, fare when they go outside the health system. It's very easy. Uh, I wouldn't say easy, but it's relatively straightforward uh, to look at outcomes such as how many patients were readmitted, how many patients had complications after certain procedures. But we should also be looking at what happens to a lot of these patients when they go home three months out, six months out, 12 months out. What is happening? Are they getting better? Are they able to go back to their functional state? Are they able to do the activities that they were doing before the diagnosis? And that requires measurement. And so, so I would say broadly, you know, greater investments, uh, improving access to care, and as well as investing in modalities to improve outcomes measurement. And when we spoke previously, you talked about a program at Boston Medical Center that was kind of doing some of those things. I wonder if you could talk about that example, because I think it's a nice specific um, instance of how a you know, kind of large health system is doing this. Yes, Boston Medical Center has uh, has been a leader in in the space of uh, incorporating social determinants of health towards uh, delivery of healthcare, and a lot of other institutions around the Boston area have invested in these uh, in these programs. So, as an example, what a lot of these places do is, for example, we have uh, elderly patients, and they require a certain kind of care. Their needs, their patient needs, are very different. So. We must consider that context before uh, making policies or developing protocols that think that every single patient is the same. That's not true. So what, what a lot of these places have done is they have utilized information technology and other uh, evolving technologies to improve patient care. And for elderly patients, that means um, in a lot of these places that they have provided them access to tools such as tablets and uh, information systems to contact their uh, primary care physician in a much more 
robust way. So before what used to happen for a lot of these places was uh, patients would have to call the ambulance, they would have to go to the ER, or they would have to see a doctor who they're not familiar with for something which it could be an ailment of a minor nature. It wouldn't necessarily require a visit. And uh, that also goes back to the cost issues. That increases the cost in the system and that eventually burdens the system even more. So what they have done uh, and a lot, of, a lot of the places is they have provided them access to nurses, uh, at home nurses, they have provided them access to uh, care resources, care coordinators to help them really navigate this space. And it goes back to understanding the system that's at play here to really focus on the socioeconomic and as well as political determinants of health. What is happening with a certain patient population? How are they, what, what kind of care do they need? What are their needs? And addressing those needs where they are rather than where the system wants them to be. So I think investing in those uh, modalities uh, is, is, the, is the right direction to pursue. As we've been talking, you know, we've been talking about systems and structures and that's sort of how your career, that's what you're, what's what you've been focusing on in your career, looking at systems, structures, how they provide or prevent access to care. Um, and one area that you're also looking at is artificial intelligence. Can you tell us about how artificial intelligence is used in healthcare and what some of the problems are? Yes, that, that's my, uh, that's my focus from the bioethics side. I was, uh, I was at Harvard Medical School for a year or so training in bioethics, and my focus was artificial intelligence in medical devices and medical decision-making systems. And what I realized was, so the first question is, you know, what is the role of AI in medicine? Uh, and that's a really important question, something a lot of us have been thinking about. The reason why AI is making so much uh, news and a lot of progress as well is for a couple of reasons. One, we have a lot of computational power currently than we ever had before. So creating certain models, creating certain algorithms and systems are much more feasible today than they were ever before. And the other issue is that of resources. If you look at how many patients we have in the US and how many physicians or other care providers we have, the match is, it, it, there's a severe imbalance. It's very difficult to care for all the patients in the same way. And what that has resulted is in fragmented care. That's why we have a lot of other uh, care providers and care navigators in the system now. But even that would not be sufficient in the upcoming years because the population is aging. There's a lot of diseases that we're diagnosing at an early point now. And uh, we do have, uh, we, we are witnessing an inc incidence, a higher incidence of a lot of uh, diseases than before. And what AI can do is AI can automate a lot of these processes that were manual before, uh, whether they are administrative tasks uh, from scheduling, meetings, or uh, even uh, prescriptions, uh, updating certain prescriptions and other uh, other functions that a, a physician is, is routinely doing, they can automate a lot of those tasks. And so what that does is free up the time for a physician or a care provider to do what they are trained to do, to talk to the patient, to counsel them, to spend time with them and not spend their energies on just the administrative and documentation needs, which are important, but 
they take up a lot of time and there's, there's a lot of burnout in, in care providers these days. And uh, I don't know a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of folks who are happy doing a lot of that work. So if we can automate a lot of those processes, uh, that, that would be really good. And it would save a lot of money as well. And that saving is going to translate in profit for a lot of the companies. And that's why they are investing in, in, those, uh, in those modalities. For me, I was uh, interested in these, uh, these decision-making systems because they will be eventually used, whether they are for reading x-rays, uh, which a lot of the research shows uh, artificial intelligence is getting better every year. And or, or even if they are pathological slides uh, for, let's say, cancer diagnosis, they are getting better as well. So there is a momentum that is building towards integrating a lot of these tools and technologies into routine medical practice. And my concern was, what would this mean for a patient? Because a lot of times when we discuss these issues is from a provider or a physician point of view or a health policy point of view. But what would this mean for a patient who often is not a player or an active player in mm -hmm. development of a lot of these technologies? And I was able to sort of look at a lot of the, a lot of the literature as well as a lot of the cases that are uh, out there uh, being uh, used. And what I found was there was a massive problem of bias in uh, the AI-enabled devices. And I'm sure you must have uh, heard about news uh, in the criminal justice system. Uh, there has already been a lot of the investigative work in, from ProPublica and others, how the AI-enabled tools were punitive for, for minority communities because mm -hmm. they were not taking the context into, uh, into consideration. And so there are similar concerns in the medical field as well. Um, I think the training sets that are used for data collection, as well as building these models, they're not comprehensive enough. They're not broad enough. They're not diverse enough. Uh, they don't consider uh, they don't consider the population as they are, because a lot of this is voluntary. A lot of this depends on who the investigator is. How are they enrolling people? So what that does is that creates a bias in the AI, which is created by us, the ones who are building it, to offer outcomes that are more in alignment with how we think about society rather than how the society is. So for example, there was this uh, artificial enabled uh, device which neurologists were using uh, and they were, they were using speech patterns to decode what kind of degenerative brain disorders a person might have hmm. or might eventually develop. And so it's a really amazing tool. If we could have that, you know, one can imagine how much administrative uh, burden this would reduce because then physicians and scientists, they can focus on actually treating the problem rather than worrying about how do we screen patients and spending time on those, uh, on those issues. So this, this, had, this had a lot of promise, but what they discovered slowly was that it was really looking at only a certain type of accent from a certain community and I don't want to go into details right now, but it was it was biased towards what was the majority in a country. And it was not taking into consideration how people who are in the minority, how they speak or how their accents, especially in a, in a, in a, in a diverse country with different uh, populations from different backgrounds and different accents, 
it wasn't able to consider that. And so what it would do is it could give you an output saying this person does not have a certain risk for neurodevelopmental problem down the line, but that person could eventually have it. It was just because right. they were not... Or the, vice versa. Yeah. And it wasn't able to recognize that the, because the system was built on a certain accent. Mm-hmm. The system was built on a certain uh, aspect of one community. But if you are living in a diverse community where there are millions of people from million, uh, thousands of different backgrounds, we, we may not be able to capture all of that if, if we're realistic. But we have to capture at least all the major communities and we have to capture all the major uh, characteristics of different communities so that we can actually create a device that addresses those problems in a way that we want to, that we would have wanted them in real life. If a patient walks inside a clinic and speaks in a certain dialect or a certain accent, no physician would misdiagnose them or or diagnose or underdiagnose them just because they don't speak the language in a certain accent. And that and that's where that's where my work uh, has been uh, has been going on. And uh, a lot of my research is looking at what are what are the factors that we should consider and how can we develop more diverse training data sets and who are the people that should be involved in development of these uh, of these data sets. Hmm. So who should be involved? I mean you mentioned looking into different communities and taking into account the diversity of a population. So how do you create these more equitable systems? How do you involve more of the population of a country? It's all about diversity. It's all about considering different perspectives. And it's about enrolling individuals from different communities and being being intentional that we must focus on these elements when we are building these models. It's not just about how do we create a certain model that can save us money? How do we create a certain model that can save us resources? How do we create a model that can save us time? But it, a person has to be intentional about how do we bring the voice of the patients to this model? And that requires having a very broad data set, being very intentional about enrolling different communities and making sure the proportion of uh, people who are enrolled in these data sets are proportional to how they represent in the society that we live in. And the other uh, thing that we can do is we can bring different experts to the table, not just engineers, we can bring physicians, we can bring sociologists, we can bring economists, we can bring uh, public policy experts to advise on these projects. They shouldn't be an engineering project where we're just focusing on the technical issues that are involved. They shouldn't be just about the policy issues that we're trying to address. But they should also be about how does society look, how does society function outside of our model, and how do we bring that perspective to the model? It may not be perfect, but that's the whole goal of any machine uh, learning system, to, to learn, to develop uh, these models. And slowly, they'll get to a point where they will represent the communities we live in. Yeah, it just goes back to who's kind of who's creating these systems. And, um, and I think it leads into your current focus on healthcare strategy where um, you're studying at Harvard Business School, looking at value-based healthcare. Um, 
so we just have a few minutes left. I just wanted to kind of wrap up with that. So you're looking at healthcare from the business side. Um, why did you think that was important? And how can leaders make changes that promote what we've been talking about in universal and equitable access to care? Yeah, that's a really important consideration uh, right now. I think given what has happened globally in the last decade, I would say, it's very clear that leadership matters and leadership matters in every single field, not just uh, politics, but medical science, healthcare and uh, public policy as well. And so for me, there are a couple of things that I have noticed in the last few years that motivated me to pursue more uh, investigations into looking at how can we use business strategy to address some of these questions on equity. And my conclusion so far is we don't have a lot of buy-in from leadership at different places. When people talk about equity, when they talk about improving access or improving quality of care, a lot of times they're talking in these abstract terms and they're not investing in resources that would make these uh, dreams a reality. And for that, we need leadership. For that, we need leadership that understands these issues and leadership that initiates projects to get this work done. And unfortunately, a lot of those considerations do come down to the financial aspect of a lot of these projects. And for me, understanding that, understanding how does strategy, how does finance, how does organizational behavior how do these elements contribute to a lot of these problems was a really important question. So as I mentioned, a lot of my work so far has been looking at health systems and public health, even the whether it's AI or cancer outcomes research or even other global health work that I'm involved in. So many of these projects cannot move forward because we don't have resources, because we're not willing to invest in people, in infrastructure, in models, in facilities, to make these dreams a reality. And as unfortunate as that is, I also realized that what we often need to make is financial case, is a case of how does this help an organization grow? And I believe personally that all of these issues, if they were addressed, they would lead to not just profit, which a lot of financial leaders are in, uh, concerned about, but they would also lead to better performance. I personally believe that, and I, I, I've seen a lot of emerging data uh, on that. But as I said, the, the buy-in is not, is not clear for a lot of the individuals, a lot of the stakeholders in the process. And for me, what is the current task is, how do I make a case to business leaders, to nonprofit leaders, to political leaders, of investing in these resources, of investing in these ideas, and what elements of business strategy, finance, organizational behavior, or other business concepts do I bring to the table to make this case? Because I already have training in clinical medicine, in public health, in bioethics, but what is often missing is making a case through, let's say a balance sheet, or some other financial tool to to some individuals, it matters. It, it does matter out there uh, to a lot of individuals. You know, uh, return on investment, 
how does that influence the uh, these ideas? I, I think that is that is a consideration for a lot of leaders. And if I could uh, close that gap, if I could make that case using some of these uh, some of these concepts, I, I would say that that would be mission accomplished. Well, Dr. Nabeed, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. The pleasure was mine. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash think research.